I got a phone call uh, from Mike Barnes yesterday, and he was calling specifically to send his greetings to all you folks here. And uh, he's, of course, out there on the, the line uh, listening. Um, I was going to make a comment here about uh, uh, Father's Day. You know, I'm not necessarily hip on those things, and I, I really, it's always embarrassing to me when somebody gives me something. So I don't really don't like it. Um, although there isn't anything wrong with it as far as the Bible's concerned, but except that it puts all the attention on one day instead of thinking in terms of your father all the time. But I, I just had to read to you this card I got from my daughter on Father's Day. It says, from your daughter. Happy Father's Day to one of the nicest, brightest, most wonderful guys in the world. And I thought, you can't mean that. I opened it and said, I knew my influence would rub off on you eventually. <laughs> Seems like I had another announcement I was going to make here. But um, I would really ask for your prayers. And by the way, Dave, I need you to come to the rescue. I don't have my sticky stuff here. Um, it's a real stress for me every single week because I, I need to come up with a new sermon every week. And I'd appreciate your prayers that uh, you would help me and, and help me to be inspired so I can really sock it to you. I had a terrible dream last night, and I woke up in a cold sweat. And what I dreamed was that I had come to preach at the Sabbath service, and I didn't have a Bible. So I implored Dave Carter to lend me his, and believe it or not, he had a King James, a new King James Version. So I got that Bible, and I opened it up, and I started preaching. It wasn't marked, and I couldn't find any of the scriptures. And there I was up there just all embarrassed and just at a complete loss as to what to say. So I made sure I had my Bible and everything today. <laughs> I'm going to do some reading here to start off with. And by the way, this isn't set. It's on 14 minutes. Um, anyway, um, I wanted to start out here on the... I commented I was going to uh, speak about Benjamin Franklin, this many-sided genius. And... Uh, just to give you an example, the whole culture at that time, it wasn't just he was unique in that because everyone who was really highly educated was, was obsessed with learning and expanding their horizons and new experiences. And that's all that uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin did for years. He didn't go out cavorting around. Anytime he had a swear, uh, spare moment, he was reading and studying and trying to expand his horizons of thinking. And uh, he always said he wasn't the best speaker by any means, but... It was the wisdom and the knowledge that he accumulated over the years that he gained such a reputation. To give you an example, he uh, decided he needed to expand his, expand his horizons, so he decided to learn French and Spanish. He learned both languages in one year, so he could speak them fluently. So that's an example of, uh, on this thing. I remember you've all heard the story about him with a kite up in the air and a key and the lightning striking. Well, that whole purpose of that experiment was to prove that electricity lightning was electricity and he had been dabbling around in electricity for years so he proved that but anyway what I want to start out with he, he not only thought in terms of 
expanding his horizons and his thinking and his experiences, he decided he, he needed to work on himself. And uh, so what I'm going to entitle this sermon is, uh, the topic is, Overcoming Requires Recognition of One's Faults. Now, we talk about people who have um, very good qualities. And you can think of anyone here in the room and you can, you, can, you can cite off their good qualities. But on the other hand, everyone has bad qualities too. So we're a mixture of good qualities and bad qualities. So the thing we want to work on and to be able to overcome is the bad qualities. Now let me give you an example here of what Ben Franklin wrote here. I read his autobiography. It's divided into two parts. The first part is just an analysis and rundown of all the things that happened to him in his life. And then the second part is divided up into a, more, a, a whole lot less of the same, except that he was giving all kinds of anecdotes and uh, experience and lessons and uh, advice. Now here's what he says here. And, and uh, in this process of learning, there would be a group of young men, and this happened all over the place. It actually caught on so that it was practically nationwide at the time, and they would, they would organize what they called juntas, or juntas, J-U-N-T-S. And what they were, they were speaking clubs where they would all read a particular book of one type or another each week, and then they would go back and they'd discuss that book and, and get into arguments and this type of thing over what the book said. And uh, I'll get to the second part here in a moment, but I'll read this first part to you here. Uh, it was about this time I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I, um, I wished to live without committing any fault at any time, and I would conquer all that, those either natural inclination, custom, or company that might lead me into. And as I knew, I thought I knew what was right and wrong. I did not see why I might not always be able to do one and avoid the other. But I soon found out I had undertaken a task more difficult than I had imagined. While my care was employed in guarding against one fault, I was often surprised by another. And habit took the advantage of inattention, inclination, or sometimes too strong for reason. And I concluded at length that the mere speculative conviction that it was our interest to be completely virtuous, it was not sufficient to prevent our slipping and that uh, con contrary habits must be broken and good ones required, uh, acquired and established in their place before we can have any state of uniform rectitude of conduct. And for this purpose, I contrived the following method. I uh, included under 13 names of virtues, all that at the time occurred to me as necessary or desirable, and annexed each one a short precept which fully expressed the extent I gave to the meaning. So he had temperance and silence and order, resolution, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, and humility. And uh, if you stop and think about those for, uh, for a moment, uh, they hit the barn, but they don't hit the door, that's for sure. Because uh, he, he, he didn't really recognize, I'm quite sure, what he knew, what, he knew human nature had faults, but he didn't probably realize the extent of it. For example, um, here's what he says on temperance. Eat not to dullness and drink not to elevation. Silence. Speak not but what may benefit others or yourself. Avoid trifling conversation. Order. Let all things have their place and let each part of your business have its time. Uh, resolution. Resolve to perform what you ought to perform without fail what you resolve. Frugality. Make no expense 
but uh, to do good to others or yourself and waste nothing. Industry, lose no time. Be always employed in something useful. Cut off all unnecessary actions. Sincerity, use no harmful deceit. Think innocently and justly, and if you speak, speak accordingly. Justice, wrong none by doing injuries or omitting the benefits that is your duty. Moderation, avoid extremes. Forbear resenting injuries as much as you think they deserve. And cleanliness, tolerate no uncleanliness in body, clothes, or habitation. And uh, tranquility, be not disturbed at trifles or at accidents, common or unavoidable. And this one is a, gives you an example of the understanding he had. Chastity, rarely use venery, which <laughs> in plain language means carnal actions, carnal behavior with women. That's what it means. Uh, but for health or offspring. Now, I wondered how in the world would that affect health? <laughs> it doesn't make much sense, does it? Uh, never to dullness, weakness, or injury of your own or another's peace or, or uh, reputation. And humility, imitate Jesus and Socrates. <laughs> Socrates <laughs> come into the picture. Now, uh, here's what he says. My intention being to acquire the, the habitude of all these virtues, I judged it would be well not to distract my attention by attempting the whole at once, but to fix them one at a time. And when I should master that, then I should proceed to the next one. He, he, he lists the ones. The first one was temperance, and then the second one was silence, and the third one was order, and the next resolution, frugality and industry, sincerity and justice. And I made a little book which I allotted a page to each of the virtues, and I'd mark with a little black spot every fault I found upon examination to have been committed respecting the virtue that day. I determined to give a week's strict attention to each one of the virtues, and then and proceeding to the last, I could go through this course complete in 13 weeks and four courses in a year. Now, you know what he didn't understand? You can't do it without God's help. And here's what he says. In the end, by a number of courses, I should be happy viewing a clean book after 13 weeks of daily examination. Mark's there any longer, and he would have overcome it. I am entered upon the execution of this plan for self-examination and continued with it with occasional intermissions for some time, and I was surprised to find myself so much fuller of faults than I had imagined. My order, order, he said, and you know he lists that as the very first thing. My order, that gave me the most trouble. I found it extremely difficult to acquire. And um, as I found the difficulty of obtaining good and breaking bad habits and other points of vice and virtue, have given up the struggle and concluded, now listen to this, I concluded that a speckled axe was best. For something that pretended to be reason was every now and then suggesting to me that such extreme nicety as I had exacted of myself might be a kind of foppery of morals, which, if it were known, would make me ridiculous, and that a perfect character might be attended with the inconvenience of being envied and hated. <laughs> so, uh, as he says here, that a benevolent man should allow a few faults in himself to keep his friends content. <laughs> but in truth, I found myself to be 
incorrigible with respect to order, and I am now grown old and my memory bad, and I never arrived at perfection. I had been so ambitious of obtaining, but fell short of, short of it, and I was by the endeavor a better and happier man than I'd otherwise have been if I had not attempted it. So uh, what it really showed, of course, was that uh, he couldn't accomplish it, and he had <laughs> taken on something that was beyond his capability or any human being's capability. And in addition to that, a lot of those things, um, while they may be good in principle, they're, they're not uh, what you find as Mr. Carter read the fruits of the Spirit there in Galatians 4. Read a few verses above that and read what human nature is like. And then what Christ's statement is in Matthew 7, uh, Mark 7, what human nature is like. Those are the things that are the real problems. Some of these included those, but a lot of them were outside of the, 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 count, the realm. So the question I ask here originally is, what is required in overcoming a recognizing, let's put it this way, what is required in order to really recognize one's faults, one's shortcomings? Now we hear, of course, as you heard this morning in the sermon, that it's necessary to overcome these, these various problems we have. But what is it going to take to do it? Well, of course, the beginning point would, you'd have to have the desire, wouldn't you? Now, why would you want to have the desire? You'd want the desire for the simple reason you realize the seriousness of it and that it is a matter of life and death. You know, we might regard things as faults, and some of them are very minor. But there are other faults that are very, very serious. Um, I remember one man who uh, was in the church for a number of years, and um, he got in trouble with the law. And one time he made the remark to me, he said, I don't know why I always lie. He said, when it would serve me better to tell the truth. So he had a, he had a character flaw, a severe character flaw of lying all the time. Now, what's the Bible say about liars? Pretty serious. And so we have to realize that when we're looking at these, what we might consider flaws or faults, some of them can be quite serious and those are the things we need to really attempt to root out of our, our lives. Now let's take the matter here of having a desire. Notice what we read here in, in Psalm 25. Psalm 25. And uh, verse number 5. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Now does that imply that the writer here, in this case was David, wanted to find out how to be a better man in God's size. He said, lead me in your truth and teach me. Now we all need to recognize that. Now the second te the text I want to read in here, is, as, I, as I've said repeatedly in the past, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are the heart of Christianity. Those three chapters, the Sermon on the Mount, summarize what Christianity is all about. And notice what he says here in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 6. Matthew 5 and verse number 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You have to have the desire. And if desire is not there, the effort is not going to be put out. And the desire has to be... Um, a result of recognizing the very, very extreme importance of it and taking it seriously. And one of the big problems the Bible says to occur in the last days is 
that people have a greater interest in themselves than in the truth. And that's absolutely true. Now, that being the case, let's ask the question, what, is, uh, what avenues can we use now? Once we have a desire, what avenues can we use now when we're, when we're, when we're analyzing ourselves? Well, let's go to, first of all, here to 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, i am uh, completed the fourth article on a series I'm doing now on Paul's epistles. And some of it's pretty heavy stuff. But one of the things uh, you'll see when you, when, you read, when you get the articles is that what a lot of these people do, because it, Peter said Paul is, is difficult to understand, and there are those who twist the scripture, his writings, even to their own destruction. And they'll, you heard this this morning, they'll do this repeatedly. They'll take one text and they'll quote that and think that's the answer. Well, that's not the answer. And this is why it says here, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. There are whole churches today who reject the Old Testament. They don't pay any attention to it because they think everything's in the New. Paul said all scripture. Is that the Old Testament? Is that the New Testament? Right. Now keep in mind, when Paul wrote this, there was no New Testament. In fact, the New Testament, uh, his, uh, church historians will tell you, was actually put together by Peter and John. And that's how it became. As early as 100 A.D., there were copies of what we know as the New Testament circulating. So that's how it, be that's how it became the New Testament. But here it says, and this is, this is certainly talking about the old, but it includes the new too. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? For doctrine, for reproof, that is censoring, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. So what's the key I'm talking about here? Reading the Bible and applying it to yourself. That's one of the most important keys. And the Bible is not like any other book you've ever read in your life. Because I don't care how good a book is, you might read one two or three times. And you might pick up things that you didn't get the first time in it. But I can tell you, when you pick up the Bible and you start reading it, you learn something new every time. It's amazing. Because God reveals a little at a time. Now, in Hebrews 4, here's what you read about the Bible. If you're taking it seriously and applying it to yourself, which is, is what we should all do. Hebrews 4 and verse number 12. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It'll cut right to the soul. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner in the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hid from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So that it's going to correct you. Now, if you read the Bible constantly and it never corrects you, you're not, get, you're not getting anything out of it. There are people today who preach and believe that the only value of the Bible is it's inspirational, it's supposed to lift you up, and it's supposed to help you. That's well and good. But they're ignoring the part that says that you better look at it because it's going to cut right through you if you have any conscience at all. 
So that is a requirement. Now in, uh, in, in Hebrews 5, verse number 14, let's ask ourselves, what is our category? Solid food belongs to those who are of a full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil so they know the difference. Babes can't do this. They don't have the capability. They can't be expected to. That's not necessarily against them. It's just the fact that it's a, it's a growing process. And uh, when you have a little child, uh, you don't pop it up after it's a few weeks old and start popping beefsteak down its stomach, do you? Probably kill the child. They have to be on milk for a time because they, that's the only thing they can take, and that's exactly the way baby Christians are. But you know you need to ask yourself, are you a baby Christian or are you an adult? Adults can tell the difference because they spend time analyzing themselves. Now that's the second factor. The third one is this. You should be able to call upon experience. You know, there's an old saying, and it certainly is true. You know what experience is? It's what you got left when everything else is gone. And that's usually what happens. And if you can't learn by the past, and if you can't learn by your mistakes, you're hopeless. The Bible says constantly, only a fool returns to his folly. And if you keep repeating the same thing over and over again, you're not learning anything. And yet, what is this human nature like? You know, you take yourself, you've got some kind of a health problem. And I've had this happen, so I know what I'm talking about. And you take great measures to be sure that you're alleviating it, whatever you can do diet-wise or, or something of that nature. Then you're not troubled with it. Then what happens after a while? You forget all about it, don't you? Then you go right back and repeat the same thing again, then you get a relapse of it. And that hap happens many, many times to people. And so the same thing can happen with you as far as, as, as the human experiences in this life. This is a testing ground. We are all being tested for the uh, magnificent goal that God has in store for all of us. And if we don't take it seriously, we're going to lose out, lose out on that opportunity. Now notice what, Paul, uh, what uh, David wrote here, or what the psalmist wrote. I'm not sure who actually wrote this whole psalm because it doesn't state here, but it is the longest of the psalms, and it's, a, it's called the psalm that uh, deals with the law. But this is in Psalm 119 and verse number 67. Psalm 119, verse number 67. And by the way, this is called an acrostic psalm. And what it means is that every little group of verses starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And uh, so I, it was probably used that way for memorization because once you knew what M stood for, which in the Hebrew is mem, then you would be able to memorize those parts. But here's what it says here in Psalm 119 and verse number 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I've kept your word. So what happened? He learned that the only way he was going to benefit if he started keeping God's way because he was afflicted for not doing it. That's the problem with the world today. We're living in a time period that is absolutely 
Um, I don't know how many years left, but it's terminating in the time of the end. So right now in this nation today, we're about halfway divided be between these progressive liberals and conservative folks. Who's going to come out on top? Well, I can tell you, in the end, the conservative ones are because they're going to be the ones that Christ's going to back up. And I've, I've asked myself many times, where are the 144,000 coming from and where are the great innumerable multitude coming from? They're not going to come from the progressive liberals unless the progressive liberals, liberals have a real heart change and turn around and go the other way. I finished a book and I haven't, uh, I lent it to somebody and I haven't gotten it back yet, but it was written by a psychiatrist who had 30 years experience and had interviewed 50,000 people. And he concluded in, that, in, in all of his work that people who are progressive liberals have a mental problem. It's a mental sickness. And it really is because they can't see reality. Why is it that you can have these people that have come up with these things and you just look and you shake your head because they don't have any real understanding of what the end result's going to be. And so as he, as he says here, he suffered by that and then he learned. And then in Psalm 94, Psalm 94, and in verse number 12, Psalm 94 and verse number 12. Blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law. Well, that depends on whether or not you're willing, first of all, to listen, that you have a desire to, and that secondly, you learn by the lessons that you, or you have failed, or you slipped. Now, just because you slip doesn't mean you've necessarily failed because we're, we're, in a we're in a war. And you know that sometimes we may lose a battle. But in the end, we want to win the war. That's just like this revolutionary uh, war general, um, Nathaniel Green. He fought the British in the South and never won a battle. He just warmed down to nothing. And they were so worn down by the time they got to Yorktown, they could hardly, um, and the French had blocked them off so they couldn't escape, and then they just closed in on them. And that brought the end of the Revolutionary War. Why? Because this general was smart enough to know that in a pitched battle he's unlikely to win against them, so he just wore them out. No, that's, that's, that's the way we, re we have to realize we're in a battle. We, wanna, we, don't, we, might, we might succumb in a battle or two, but we can always regroup, regroup, and then win the war. That's what we're at. That's what we want to accomplish. And then First Corinthians eleven. First Corinthians eleven. And verse number thirty-one. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Well, that's where experience comes in. That's when experience comes in. And if you learn by the lesson, then you've made a great stride and you won't go back to it. Now, that leads me to the next point. What's another way by which you can begin, begin to recognize your faults? Somebody tells you. The problem is, a lot of times when somebody tells you they don't know how to tell you in the proper way, and so instead of accepting it, you get your hackles up and reject it. 
That's why it's so important that when you correct somebody, you do it in the right way. Now, do we always accomplish that? No. Do we fail sometimes in, in using the right tact and diplomacy? Sure we do. But you have to realize that overall, the first thing you need to do, if you get upset about something, you need to sit back and after you cool down and then start analyzing and ask your question, now, is that true or is it false? You have to be the one to evaluate that. But notice, there are some proverbs that are very valuable. I've said it before, and I can't repeat it too many times. If you sat down with your children and you went with a book of Proverbs, not necessarily in the authorized version, because the authorized version was written in 1600 English. And the great value of the authorized version is it set the standard for the English language that still continues to this day. It was a masterpiece of English language. But if you read it in some of the modern translations, and I will warn you about this, the only translations to rely on are those that are based on the received text. Now, what do I mean by the received text? It's what's called a Byzantine recension of manuscripts. 5,000 manuscripts exist in the, in the Byzantine recension. That is, a Byzantine family of manuscripts. The others are 5% of all the rest of them come from either Egypt in what is called the Alexandrian recension and the other one, the Roman recension, or, or the, that, that became the, uh, the, uh, some of the translations. And both of those are very flawed. Now, the King James Version is based on the Byzantine reception. So is the New King James Version. That's why I have to shake my head when people get all excited and they say, the only Bible that's inspired is a King James translation. It's not inspired, it's a translation. What's inspired is the original Greek and Hebrew text. You can make all kinds of mistakes in a translation. And as I said the other day, there are 3,000 errors in the King James Version. They're all minor, but there's some that are quite extensive. But you have to realize, you take your children through the book of Proverbs, in some translations it's understandable, and you'll be amazed. If, if you could follow the advice in the, that's in the, in the book of Proverbs on behavior and uh, all the kind of things that are, that are very, very wise, you could, you could save yourself from 99% of the problems you experience in this life. That's how valuable it is. And I'm talking about the physical life. I'm not talking necessarily about all the spiritual things that are involved. But as you read here in Proverbs 9, verse number 9, Proverbs 9, verse number 9, give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Now what's that tell you? It tells you that even a wise man doesn't know everything, and he has to learn. Furthermore, it says here, teach a just man and he will increase in learning because he wants to learn and he wants to expand. And then in Proverbs 12, verse number 15, and we're talking here about somebody telling you, so it's telling you if somebody's teaching you and you're a wise man, if you're wise, you'll be able to discern what's, what's valuable and what isn't. And in Proverbs chapter 12 and verse number 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But he who needs counsel is wise. Do we all need counsel? Absolutely. 
That's why, as I'll get to this text here in a moment or two, the multitude of counselors are safety. But if you're one of these type of people who you think you know, have all the answers and you know everything there is and nobody can add anything to you, you're headed for trouble. Because sooner or later it's going to backfire on you. And it's wise to get counsel. But notice here Proverbs 13, verse number 18. Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction. So what if a friend tells you something? Well, first of all, he needs to learn how to tell you in a tactful manner. But even if he doesn't, then you still need to think it through after you cool down a little bit because the hardest thing for any human being to do is to take correction. Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction, but he who regards a rebuke will be honored. Is there any human being that does not have faults and frailties? You know, we talk about all of our uh, fine qualities. What about the ones that aren't so fine? You know, you look at any human being, and I'll tell you what you're looking at. You're looking at two persons. You're looking at the public image, the way you appear to outsiders and, uh, and, uh, and people you deal with in the world, but then you're looking at the other figure, the one who, what he's really like at home. And if you want to know what your faults are, just ask your wife. Because she'll know you better than anybody. She may not know you as well as you know yourself, but she'll know you better than anybody. And she'll see that, and it works both ways. I'm not, I'm not saying that it's all just the man's at fault and the woman isn't. It works both directions. Now, let's notice here Proverbs 27, verse number 9. As we're talking about somebody gives you some instruction and tells you. Proverbs 27 and verse number 9. Ointment and perfume delight the heart, and the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. That's right. Now, do you receive it? So that's another important factor in coming to recognize the frailties and the shortcomings that, that uh, we may have, which we all do. And then the last one, I'm going to cover this briefly, and that is, if you've been called to a knowledge of the truth, do you have any confidence that God's going to lead you? You better. That's the big problem. You know, when the church went astray back there in the 70s, who'd they go to? The scholars. Now let me ask you this question. How many of those scholars are converted and have the Holy Spirit? Not a one of them. So they're relying on human prowess and human, uh, human reasoning. And the church promptly went astray. Now, they went astray for a real reason. I've commented on this before. The man in charge wanted to marry a divorced woman. And he was told by two of the leading men in the organization that the, he could not marry this woman unless he changed the doctrine on divorce and remarriage. And they could not change the doctrine on divorce and remarriage unless they first changed some obscure doctrine first. That's why they picked Pentecost. So that's what happened. And the very moment they made that change on Pentecost, what happened to the church? I saw 100,000 people just like their blinders were shut and they were just gone like that. It was shocking. Now I can't tell you why God uh, really revealed it to me, but I knew that very moment that was the end of the church. 
Took them 20 years to finally come to that place, but they have rejected everything now. You have all these groups out there that Mr. Carter was talking about this morning. Many of them don't know their right hand from their left, and they sure don't know how to count Pentecost. They can't stop and think, what were the consequences when they made that change? It destroyed the church. Now, that ought to be enough to tell you something's wrong. Scholars have a lot of knowledge. I refer to them all the time. But I can tell the difference between truth and error when they're, when they're giving advice. Sometimes it's very good. Sometimes it's very bad. And the Holy Spirit that says it will lead you, and that's exactly what Jesus promised. Now, if you consider yourself a Christian and, you, and you, you consider yourself to have the Holy Spirit, then you'd better recognize that. And as you heard, don't grieve the Spirit by deciding that uh, you're going to trust something other than God's Spirit leading you. Now let's notice here, Philippians 3, verse number 15. I'm only going to read two texts here. Philippians 3, verse number 15. Therefore, let us as many as are mature. And that's the proper translation. Practically in every case in the King James Version where it uses the word perfect, it's the Greek word mature. Now, as adults, we consider ourselves to be mature, don't we? Now, as mature adults, do we make mistakes? Absolutely. Just because you're mature doesn't mean you don't make a mistake. So what he's saying here, you're liable to find things wrong with yourself. So what does it say here? Let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. That is, this mind of God, and as, as he's describing up here, what Paul's attitude was. And then notice what he's, read the next part of this verse. And if any man, if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Now, who's he going to do it by, the scholars? He's going to do it by the Spirit. So that's what I'm talking about. When you're analyzing faults and shortcomings... That's the key. But you know something? You need to be praying that God will help you to see your faults. You know, you stop and think about God for a moment. I'm sitting there in my chair in my little uh, den back there, and I'm looking out the window, and what do I see? I see this beautiful blue sky. Now, can you imagine here we are on this earth looking up into outer spaces with just nothing there, and it's a beautiful blue. Why is it that color? Then I look at all the beautiful green trees that are around there, and we have all this beautiful greenery, and why is it that color? Then I look down at the garden, and here's this brown dirt on the earth, and it'll, it, they all just go together beautifully. Now, how did it end up that way? You know, success is paying attention to detail. If you don't pay attention to detail, you're going to get in all kinds of problems. Now, you think God thinks in a detailed manner? Well, his mind is so far superior to ours, it can't even begin to clap. I mean, you talk about detail. And that's success. But that's a willingness on your part to be led by the Holy Spirit and to ask for God to help you to understand the details. Because that's what's going to take place. All right, now let's ask the next question then. Along with these particular things I've just mentioned here, what should you be doing? 
Well, you should be evaluating then. Evaluating yourself. If you don't take time to evaluate yourself, you won't make progress. Now let's notice here Proverbs 14, verse number 8. I'll read a couple of Proverbs here. Proverbs uh, 14 and verse number 8. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way. Understand his way. What makes us do things? Why do we do things that we do? Do we stop and analyze why? What leads us to make that particular decision or do that particular thing? Now, if you want to understand your way, that's what you're doing. You're evaluating and asking yourself the question, why do you do that? As it says here, verse number 8, but the folly of fools is deceit, or the meaning in the Hebrew is falsehood. Self-deceived. See, the thing about human nature, as you read in Jeremiah 17, it's deceitful. The heart of man. In other words, man's inner being, his thoughts, his, uh, his, whole, his, his thinking processes, the Bible says, are deceitful above all things. He's desperately wicked. That's man. God made him that way. Why did he make him that way? Because those are the things he has to overcome. People will do some of the most wicked things to one another just to get revenge or just because they're mad and upset about something. And they don't realize that the particular circumstance that arose is a test. And if they're smart, they'll think that out before they act. And they'll be asking themselves, why did they do it? So that's what I'm talking about here. Proverbs 18, verse number 15. The heart of the prudent acquires knowledge. Now you stop and think what I read to you about Ben Franklin. You have to say that even though he had, he had no idea what he was up against and didn't realize that he could not overcome those things without the Spirit of God, he had the right idea. He said in the end, as you recall, because he was talking about Somebody sells you an axe and it's all shiny and perfect. And he says, you're better off to have one that's speckled. Because at least you won't make all your neighbors mad because they'll think you're self-righteous. So the fact is, we're going to be fighting these things as long as we live. But I can tell you, the heart of the prudent acquires knowledge. And the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. That doesn't mean just a matter of facts. That means to yourself. That's very difficult for a lot of people to do because the very moment they feel uncomfortable, they don't want any more of it. Now, that being the case there, I want to read another section here because this is really an eye-opener here on Ben Franklin here. I'm going to talk now about taking advice. Now, I told you that he was responsible for organizing these juntas they were all over, and they were clubs of young men, 
as I stated, who studied all kinds of books and then would get together to discuss them in order to ex expand their thinking. And that's what he was interested in. And uh, you will find, as I said earlier, the whole viewpoint of youth at that time was for that very purpose. Not the, the senseless, empty uh, things that people seek for today as pleasure and, and all this kind of nonsense that doesn't really profit in the end. Here's what he said. Uh, he's talking here. In this piece, it was my design to explain and enforce this doctrine that various actions are not hurtful because they are forbidden, but forbidden because they're hurtful. The nature of man alone considered. That it was therefore everyone's interest to be virtuous who wished to be happy even in this world. My list of virtues contained at first 12, but a Quaker friend, having kindly, kindly informed me that I was generally thought proud, that my pride showed itself frequently in conversations, and that I was not content with being in the right when discussing any point, but overbearing and rather insolent, of which he convinced me by mentioning several instances. Now, how have you taken that if somebody said that to you? Oh, watch Ben Franklin. I determined endeavoring to cure myself, if I could, of this vice of folly among the rest, and I should add humility to my list, giving an extensive meaning to the word. I cannot boast much success in acquiring the reality of this virtue, but I had a good deal with regard to the appearance of it. <laughs> I made it a rule to forbear all direct contradiction and uh, sentiments of others and all positive assertion of my own. Now listen to this man. This is one of the reasons he became one of the greats. I even forbid myself agreeably to the old laws of our junta that the use of every word or expression in the language that imported a fixed opinion such as certainly, undoubtedly, and I adopted instead of them I conceive, I apprehend, and I imagine this thing to be so, or it appears to be present. A whole less dogmatic, isn't it? And a whole lot less offensive. And I, or I imagine. Um, and I adopted instead of those, and then he says here, so it appears to me at the present. When another asserted something that I thought an error, I denied myself the pleasure of contradicting him abruptly, and showing immediately that some absurdity of his position, and in answering I began by observing that in certain circumstances his opinion would be right, but at the present there appeared or seemed to me some differences. I soon found the advantage of this change in my nature and the conversations I engaged in went more pleasantly. The modest way by which I pr proposed my opinion procured them a, reader, a readier reception and less contradiction, and I had less mortification when I found to be in the wrong, and I more easily prevailed with others to give up their mistakes and join me when I happened to be in the right. In this mode, which I first put on with some violence or natural inclination, became at length so easy 
and so habitual to me that perhaps for these 50 years no one has ever heard a dogmatical expression escape from me, and to this habit I think it principally owing that I had early so much weight in my fellow citizens when I proposed new, institu new institutions or alterations of the old and so much influence of, of public councils that I became a member. In other words, his, his public works uh, influenced people so much because they were wise, but he always had a right approach. He didn't uh, take some attack approach and insult them. And I generally carried my points. In reality, there is perhaps no one of, the, of, no one of our natural passions so hard to subject as pride. Disguise it, struggle it, beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as you please, and it's still alive. And with every now and then, it'll peep out and show itself. We'll see it perhaps often in this history. That is what he's writing here. For even as I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. <laughs> so you see why he was the, was the man he was. He could think things through. All right, now we're talking about taking advice. And this Quaker friend clued him as to what his problems was and gave him a series of examples, and he took it to heart. Now let's notice Psalm 141 and verse number 5. Let the righteous strike me, it shall be a kindness. And let him rebuke me, and it shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. So here's a man that was willing, the, the psalmist here wrote, which was David, was saying that if a righteous man corrected him, it was a blessing. And in Proverbs 11, verse number 14, Proverbs 11 and verse number 14, Where there is no counsel, the people fail. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Don't ever forget that. Don't think for one second that you have all the answers. Because there may be others that see it from a different viewpoint, and you may find yourself making adjustments. Uh, maybe in some cases you won't change. But it certainly is worth considering. And in Proverbs 28, verse number 23, He who rebukes a man will find more favor afterward than he who flatters with his tongue. That's right. So, a true friend is one that's not going to do you a lot of harm and damage by flattery and all that kind of thing. But by the same token, he's not going to be somebody that's writing you all the time either. And uh, you know what you're best to do? The best thing to do is to uh, not offer advice unless you ask for it. Somebody goes around all the time giving advice to people is going to have nothing but rejection. You can certainly see what people's flaws and faults are. And if they ask you, fine, but tell them in a diplomatic manner. If you don't ask for it, don't offer it. It's like uh, 
one of the Rockefellers, one of the main ones later on because they built that big TV uh, dam there, in, in those dams in Tennessee, which provides electrical power now to about seven or eight states. And um, when he got done making a speech there, one of the reporters said, well, Mr. Rockefeller, what advice do you have to give to the young? And he said, I don't have any advice for the young. They don't want it. How true. How true. Now, you heard Mr. Carter this morning say about prayer and fasting, so I don't have to spend a lot of time on this and not quenching the spirit. So I'll just uh, touch on a couple of these here briefly. But here you read, uh, this is a good, good advice right here in James 1, verse number 5. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Now how many times do we pray for wisdom? One thing I'll remember about Leon Shepler. Every single time he made a prayer, he always asked for wisdom. And he mentioned wisdom. The Bible says wisdom is a principal thing. Therefore, with wisdom, get knowledge. And wisdom is the ability to have the, the common sense to know how to apply the knowledge. You'd be amazed how many people have knowledge and they don't have a lick of sense as to how to apply it. And that's what, where wisdom comes in. If any of them lacks it, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, not doubting. I don't know how many times this happened to me where I've been in a jam, and I would think about it and pray about it, and all of a sudden the answer would come just like that. I remember one time years ago in Kansas City, we were living over in one section of the city, renting from a lady there, a nice, nice little house, but it was just literally infested with brown recluse spiders. And if you, don't, if you know anything about a brown recluse, you don't want to be bitten by one of those. And we'd, we'd be out of town because I was on the road half or three-quarters of the time, and we'd be out of town. I'd come back to the house, and there'd be brown recluses all over the place. I woke up one morning, and one was on my leg. It didn't bite me. But uh, we decided to move from there, and we went clear over to the area of Kansas City called Ruskin Heights. It was kind of on the southwest no southeast portion of the city. And this lady had this house for rent, and so my wife went over and looked it over, and we decided to take it, so I paid her. Uh, she said she needed the money right away, so I paid her in advance for months. months and, and, but just before I paid her, she had moved out. I paid her the money. She moved right back in. Now, $165 back in those days, that meant something to me because we, we weren't living high on the hog by any means. And I prayed and I asked God, what the world should I do? And all of a sudden it came to me, offer another month's rent. And I did. She moved out, we moved in, and that's the last she ever got back in that house. <laughs> and I knew exactly what would happen because she was, she was being financed by Home Savings Corporation. I don't know if it still exists anymore. And I knew very well what would happen if I started giving her the rent. She'd spend it on something else and then they'd foreclose. So I called up Home Savings and made an agreement with them, and I paid the rent to them for the next two years. Oh, that woman was furious. But I didn't care. Anyway, I, we, we turned the house back. We finally moved and turned the house back to, back to her, but uh, um, I even lent her some money one time. She's so hard up. 
I never got it back. I just, just gave her whatever X number of dollars it was. It was more than $100, I know that. So that's just an example. That's a little physical example. How many times have you had that happen to you? So that's, that's an important factor. And then notice James 5, verse number 16. James 5, verse number 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Fervent prayer. Now, there are times, of course, when we don't have situations that are going to lead us to give fervent prayers, but there are times when there are, too. Now, if you're really serious, God's going to recognize that. But you better have confidence that he is hearing you, and the way you can have confidence in him hearing you is you know you're trying your very best to live up to his, his word, and you're not violating your conscience and uh, deciding that uh, you'll obey this, but you're going to reject this, which is what a lot of people do. Did that mean of you? You better stop and think about that. And then finally here, as you heard Mr. Carter say, it grieve not the spirit. Uh, don't quench it and stir it up, as you read in 1 Thessalonians 5.19 and 2 Timothy 1.6. I'm going to read this one text to you here, and this, this should give you a great deal of, uh, of confidence and uh, appreciation. And this is Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. We talk about receiving the Holy Spirit. Well, we receive the Holy Spirit as a down payment. That's called from the Father. Now, we all know what a down payment is. That's called the earnest money. You buy a house, you have to put down earnest money. No realtor is going to sign a contract with you if you don't put money down to show that you're earnest about the purchase. So God gives you the earnest of his spirit. But Jesus Christ supplies you with a great deal of the, of the power and the help to be able to live it. Now notice what you read here. Paul says, Philippians 1 verse 19, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. Do you have a supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ? You'd better have. And if you're not praying regularly and studying, you're going to lack. So you see, I asked the question originally here, or I, I posed this question, overcoming, or this statement, overcoming requires recognition of your faults. I thought the examples that Ben Franklin gave were just absolutely masterpieces. It just shows you what, uh, why he was called a many-sided genius. And I tell you, if we thought the same way about our relationship with God, I think we'd be a whole lot further along than what we are. This day of Pentecost represents the receipt of the Holy Spirit. Now let's recognize the value of it and let's put it to use.